It affects our marriages. It affects us if we are single. It affects us in our vocation, our recreation, our politics, our morality, our ethics. Allegiance to Christ, regeneration, affects every aspect of our lives. It's amazing. Sometimes you'll hear politicians or others and say, you can have your religion on Sunday morning in your sanctuary, in your temple, in your mosque, or in your wherever, but just don't bring it here. That's impossible for the Christian. We will bring Christ everywhere we go because regeneration is a whole life issue. It will come into the way I work. It will come in if I were some sort of political representative. It would, it would influence how I uh, advocate for others. And so we will see, I think, see some of that today, that allegiance to Christ is the whole life allegiance. Now, before we get going, it's important that we remind ourselves where we've been because what we're going to be looking at today certainly has um, its basis or its foundation and things we've really been talking about for, for quite some time. So a quick review of of what Paul has been addressing in 1 Corinthians. Especially in chapter 7, he's been addressing the question, how does faith affect my relationships? How does faith affect my relationships? And we've been seeing that. How does faith affect my marriage relationship? How does it affect my sexual relationships within that marriage? How does it affect me as a single person? How does it affect me... um, being a Christian now, should I now divorce my spouse? That was actually a question. What about remarriage? Or living with an unbelieving spouse? Or how do we bear children as a, as a Christian now? What do, how does it affect my being a Christian? How does that affect my raising of my children? Remember, Paul is dealing with two extremes. Paul's been dealing with the first extreme, which we might just kind of um, put in the category of license or perhaps liberty. Today, we might call it free grace. That would be the, the common term today. And the term is that, well, I'm saved so I can live however I want. Um, so Paul is addressing it in regards to a sexual ethic. And people were saying, well, you know what? What you do in the body doesn't matter. Your spirit's saved. That's good. It's going to go on and be with the Lord. And so it doesn't matter what you do in the body. And Paul, um, I think, sufficiently refutes that idea. But then there's the other extreme. And the other extreme was that... um, if you really want to be spiritual, if you really want to uh, get a grasp and, and get ahead and be really approved by God, then what you need to do is reject and uh, refuse anything that is pleasurable. And so if you're in, and so the, the, the issue was, well, if you're married, be celibate within your marriage. And Paul is saying, no, 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 that extreme also is off the table. So Paul is is, is saying that, um, my, my faith affects my relationships. And he goes on and he says, if you're married, stay married and um, remain intimate. If you're single, understand that God has called you that, that way. If, uh, 
if you're living with an unbelieving spouse, stay married. See, there had been numerous bad responses, and Paul is addressing those bad responses. So ultimately, what Paul was saying is stay in your relationship. Stay, remain as you are. So with that, let me give you a little bit of an idea of where we hope to go today by way of preview. Because when we look at this text, it seems rather disconnected from what precedes and what follows, but actually it's a, it, it forms a bridge between what precedes and what follows. And the theme continues, stay as you are. Remain as you are. But Paul is going to introduce two new circumstances. He's going to introduce two new circumstances. He's been talking about singleness and marriage and divorce and and remarriage, but he's going to introduce two new circumstances into this mix. And the first one is ethnicity, and the second one is social status. So ethnicity and social status is going to be Paul's big Issue, two big issues. So conversion to Christ results in a change to one's ethical and spiritual life, but does not necessarily change one's earthly status. Let me repeat that rather lengthy statement. Conversion to Christ results in a change to one's ethical and spiritual life, but not necessarily one's earthly status. So maybe an illustration would go something like this. Um, If you were born in poverty and then you come to faith, your earthly status, that is your poverty, may not change. You may remain in poverty contra the prosperity teachers. You may live out the rest of your life in poverty. You may die impoverished. As a believer... So it may change your ethical and spiritual life, but it does not necessarily change your earthly status. On the flip side, maybe you were born in royalty and you become a believer. The privileges and the um, advantages that might uh, be seen in royalty, you may end up, you're probably not going to be able to rescind or denounce your royalty. So that's just a couple kind of rudimentary uh, illustrations. In other words, your ethical and spiritual life will change, but your social status may not. So, question in the, by way of preview. How do I live out the life that, of Christ in the place that I have been called? How do I live out the life of Christ in the place that I've been called? When I become a Christian, I'll just maybe get ahead of myself here. So if I become a Christian and I am a woodworker, do I need to become a missionary? Paul is saying stay a woodworker. Most like, more likely than not, remain as a woodworker. How will I serve Christ in this life? So Paul will answer, usually it's better for you to remain as you are. Note the term, usually it is better to remain as you are. So when you become a Christian, if you're married, stay married. Paul would argue, if you are single, stay single. So let me give you a a little bit of an outline, and we need to get this, uh, um, it's kind of a, a, 
in order to understand where Paul is going, it's important that we have a good understanding of how Paul is arguing his position. All right. So let's see. Can you click on that? There we go. Um, there's my outline. Um, it is a triple-decker sandwich. Yeah. And that will also maybe give us a little hope for the, uh, the, few, the immediate future after the service. But Paul basically states a very basic principle. And the principle, he states it three times. And um, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him. He says that in, in verse 17, in verse 20, and in verse 24. Live as you have been called. Principle, principle, principle. He restates it three times. But in between each of those, he gives an illustration or an application. So he states the principle, live as you are. Then he gives his first application. Then he states the principle. Then he gives a second application. And then he closes with stating the principle. When we understand that, we can get a good idea of where Paul is going. So let me just... um, kind of divert a little bit onto a sanctified rabbit trail. And that is, for all of y'all out there, when you are reading God's Word and when you are studying it, if you can understand the outline or the flow of thought that the author has given, you will do very well. By to It will be very helpful for you to uncover what the author is intending to say. So there's the flow. That's going to help us. So, um, all right, we can get rid of sandwiches now. I'm going to go ahead and uh, read our text, and as I do, I will ask you not only to pay attention, but think. Consider, there is at least, there are a couple of key words, but one biggie, so I want you to pay attention to the key word. You ready? Here we go. This is God's inerrant word. Verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Let each one remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Were you a, do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who has call, was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So, nine times in eight verses, Paul uses this word called, or call, some form of this word call. So, I suppose it would be good for us to begin by defining our terms. What does Paul mean by call? Now, if you were to go through and count, you're going to count eight. But there are nine. I'm not making it up. You just, you need to go to your Greek New Testament and you will find nine. So we would do well to figure out what what is Paul talking about in calling, this idea of calling. Well, um, often when we talk about this word calling or called, 
many times we think of it in the sense of a vocation, especially in ministry. We think, well, are you called to be a pastor? Were you called to be a ministry? What is your calling? Now that you're a Christian, what is your calling? Are you, are you an evangelist? Are you a missionary? Are you a church planter? Are you called? People might say, well, do you think that person's really called to be a pastor? So we see it used in, in, in the area of clergy quite often, but we also see it used um, outside of the ecclesiastical realm. We see it in just basic uh, life. I just believe that my calling in life is an architect or I am called to, um, to raise my kids. That seems to be my calling. So oftentimes when we use this word, um, we use this word calling, we use it in terms of vocation. I am called to do such and such. I really fulfill my, I really think I'm fulfilling my calling when I am in a classroom teaching kids, something along those lines. And it is used once in that sense in our text. Verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. That word condition is actually a cognate of the Greek word kaleo, which is to call. Each one should remain in the calling in which he was called. So it is used vocationally in in this text. But primarily, when the word call or calling or one of its uh, derivatives is used in this text and probably in the New Testament, it has to do what we refer to as the effectual call, the effectual call. The effectual call is is aptly named. It is a call that has an effect. It is the call of God. It is the drawing of the Holy Spirit of a person into fellowship with Christ. It is God's call to a person which draws them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. So you might, we might call people to receive Christ in a crowd and maybe only three people respond to that call. That's the effectual call. call, There's the general call that went out to everybody, but the effectual call, the call that had an effect was the effectual call on those three people. So the day you responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ and bowed the knee and called upon the name of the Lord for salvation, that was the day of the effectual call where God called you into relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? Have I defined that term well? It is not just me presenting the gospel. It is the actual drawing of God into fellowship with himself. We see it very clearly in 1 Corinthians 1.9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. And we see this idea of calling. Paul puts it in Romans. He says, those whom he predestined, he also foreknew. And those whom he foreknew, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's the effectual call. It began before the beginning of creation, but at a point in time, God called you. 
And not only did God, and then out of that calling, he declared you not guilty. Oh, and by the way, even though you haven't received glorification, the call guarantees that aspect of your salvation. It is God's drawing of his people to himself. That's what we're dealing with in this text. Primarily, that effectual call. And so, in verse 17, in verse 20, and in verse 24, Paul is saying, stay in the state in which you were called. Or, let me put it this way, remain in the state you were in when you were converted. If you were married when you were converted, if you were singled, if you were single, if you were widowed, if you were in a job that does not dishonor God, remain there, even if it's viewed as menial by societal standards. The call to salvation, Paul is going to argue, the call to salvation transcends and transforms external circumstances. This is important to the Corinthian people and it will have application to us because to the Corinthians, one's social standing to move up the rank in society was evidence that you are a really spiritual person. If you are to rise in social class, That is evidence, then, that you are a truly spiritual person. God must love you more. We do the same today. So Paul is dealing with the call to salvation um, will transcend and transform your external circumstances. And Paul is going to provide very specific instructions. So with that... Let's go ahead and look at our first application in verses 18 and 19. Verses 18 and 19, Paul says, Remain in the state in which you were in when you were converted. And then he brings up this issue. His first application is to those who were circumcised or not. And you'll see I put on on the screen here, circumcision, and then in parentheses, ethnic. This is an ethnic issue. has to do with one's ethnicity. See, the Corinthian church had both Jews and Gentiles. That's one way of saying that the Corinthian church had both circumcised and uncircumcised individuals within it. Now, if you were a Jewish person, a Hebrew in the Corinthian church, you would have viewed this physical mark as that which identifies a person as as a son of the covenant an external mark that testified to one's inclusion in the family of God. That if you were part of the family of God, this external mark is present. And in fact, without this mark, one would be considered outside of the blessings of God. This was a huge issue within the New Testament, perhaps even an issue today. But uh, I would just direct you to read the book of Galatians. Circumcision was a huge issue. It identified the, the issue that Paul is addressing is that there are people coming into the church that unless you have this mark, you need to become a Jew first, then you can become a Christian. And to become a Jew, you first need this external mark and also keep dietary laws. But it was circumcision that was at the heart of the matter. And so within the Corinthian church, there are people who are marked as 
and, and believe that this mark is a sign that you are a child of the covenant. On the flip side, Gentiles would have considered this practice barbaric and absolutely um, abhorrent in their sight. Are you kidding me? You do that? So, within the Corinthian church, circumcision, or lack of circumcision, served as an ethnic marker. It served as, are you Jew or are you Gentile? It's a very simple thing. What ethnicity are you? Well, there was a physical, external marker that designated your ethnicity. Paul is saying, remain as you are. In other words, your ethnicity was not determinative in God's calling you to salvation. When you got saved, Paul didn't say, oh, well, you're, you're a Gentile, so I'm going to save you. Or, you have the right markings on your body, you're in. Paul's saying that your circumcision was known to God prior to his effectual call. And it did not provide any advantage whatsoever in regards to that call. Are you you following along with where I'm at? So, your circumcision was known to God prior to his effectual call. It did not provide some advantage. Remain as you are. In other words, you, you don't need to um, remove that mark. I didn't know that was possible, but... In studying this text, there was actually a procedure to do that. I don't know the details of it. I didn't go that far. He's just saying, remain as you are. Don't undo it. Likewise, Paul is saying, he was well aware, God was well aware of your uncircumcision prior to his effectual call, and it, did, it was not a hindrance to that call He didn't say, well, oh man, I really want that person in the kingdom, but oh no, they don't have the mark. What am I going to do? God can save Jews and Gentiles. He saves them by grace. He saves every ethnicity by his grace. Their ethnicity is not a standard that God uses to measure out his favor or the lack of that ethnicity. So Paul is saying Jews are under no obligation to remove the mark and Gentiles are under no obligation to receive the mark. When God called you, when you were converted, it was not on the basis of your ethnicity. And in fact, attempting to alter this reality will not make you more or less acceptable to God who justifies people from every ethnic group. Romans chapter 3, verse 30. Paul writes... Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Your ethnicity does not hinder God from calling you, nor does it give you an advantage in God's calling you. Neither addition or removal of the mark makes you more saved. Or perhaps even this, makes you more savable. Remain in the state in which you were called. And without going into great... I don't want to go too far over 
in this direction, but it should help us to maybe uh, consider um, the abhorrent teaching of critical race theory um, in light of this text. Paul is saying, stop it. It has nothing to do. God calls people from every ethnicity. And one ethnicity is not of higher value than another. God saves people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that has... You don't have to... I'll just, Paul's dealing with the issue. You don't have to become a Jew first. It will not make you more spiritual. It won't make you more lovable to God. You do not need to change your ethnicity. God called you in that state. Now, Paul says something very, very shocking. And this... Verse 19, For neither circumcision counts for anything. I'll just stop there. Well, I'll go on. Nor nor uncircumcision. This would have been shocking to a Jew. A Hebrew, for Paul, Paul, a Hebrew, to say, in the midst of Hebrews, circumcision is nothing. He is not saying that it is sinful. He is not saying that it is holy. He's just saying it is immaterial. In regards to calling. Circumcision is nothing. For the Jew who thought circumcision was everything, this is a shocking statement. He doesn't say it's sinful. He's just saying it's nothing. So, quick summary. God's call to the crucified Christ voids all former markers that assign value to others based on their ethnicity. Let me repeat that. God's call to the crucified Christ voids all former markers that assign value to others based on their ethnicity. So some might be saying, well, we're more holy to God because we have this mark, or we're more holy because that's barbaric. We would never have anything to do with it. Paul's saying it's nothing. It has nothing to do with my love and my calling towards you. When you were called and converted, you had this mark, and it did not bump you up in line. When I called you, you did not have this mark and it was not a demerit against you. I called you out of my own sovereign purposes. That's what matters. Well, so ethnicity is nothing, Paul says. Keeping God's commandments is everything. Verse 19, for neither that circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. And that just had to be a, 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 an amazing statement to, to a Hebrew, thinking, wait a second, but that is the commandment of God. Keeping God's commandments is everything. Obedience to God trans, transcends cultural distinctions. It is by obeying God that cultural distinctions become beautiful. It is by obeying God. When we go and we do missionary work and we go into other cultures, there are many things that make those cultures beautiful. But the thing that really makes them beautiful is when we're meeting brothers and sisters who are following Christ. What beautifies the nation? These brothers and sisters who love Christ and they're following him and obeying him. 
So it is by obeying God that cultural distinctions become beautiful. Obeying God is the command of Paul. So let me just begin with the very first act of obedience that, um, that God calls um, individuals to be part of, and that is repent and believe the gospel. If you do not repent and believe the gospel, everything else you do will be ab- utter disobedience to Christ. You can come to church, you can take communion, you can be a church member, whatever you do, you can be nice, you can feed the poor, but it, and those are all would be fall in the category of, of obedience to God. But if you miss that very first act of obedience, repent and believe the gospel, everything you do outside of that is in direct opposition to God. So to repent, that means turn from your sin. You may say, I'm a really good person, but all of us have sinned, every single one of us. And I think if you look deeply, you'll see, well, you know what, I, I have lied, I have, you know, gossiped, I have done some things that maybe I shouldn't have done. And some of you are going, man, I, I don't need to think too hard, there's plenty of stuff. Regardless, repent. Turn away from that, but more than that, but not only turn away from that, it, it is a turning to Christ as well. Lots of people turn away from their sin. There are many, many people who used to be thieves, but they don't steal anymore. That doesn't make them a Christian. It is turning away from and turning to Christ and trusting in His work on Calvary, that is his death, burial, and resurrection to save you from your sins. He died in your place so that your sin would be credited to his account. And he lived for your righteousness so that his righteousness is now credited to your account. That's the gospel. Believe the truth that Christ died for sinners, of which I am the foremost of all. That's the very first act of obeying Christ. Paul doesn't say get circumcised and then believe. Obey God. That's what's important. The two great commandments, what are they? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. See, keeping God's commandment is something that any person from any ethnic group can do. You do not need to alter how God has made you to keep his word. A person from the remotest part of the earth can hear the gospel and respond. A person living in your household can hear the gospel and respond. See, God calls the rich and the poor. And God calls the immigrant and the native. God calls the PhD and the one who doesn't even have a GED. See, being rich or poor, immigrant or native, PhD or GED, does not improve or detract from your value to God. God does not say, oh, well, you have a PhD. I would prefer you over the person who has a GED. Nor, as liberation theology teaches, the fact that you're poor automatically puts you in and all the rich have no hope. Paul's saying, I even call rich people. 
into the kingdom of heaven. I call Hebrews and I call Gentiles. I call Eskimos and I call Natives and I call Malaysians and I call Japanese and I call Ecuadorians and I call them all. Some of them are educated and some of them are not. Some of them are rich and some of them are poor. Some of them are seen as no account by society and some are exalted by society and I call them all. What matters is that you follow him. And so because God has called us to our station of life, Paul is saying we should remain there unless that station in life is violating God's commands. In Paul's day, you might have had temple prostitutes. He's not saying remain a temple prostitute or a temple priest. But God's call did not hinge on their value as calculated by worldly criteria, but came to them solely on the basis of God's purposes and grace. Paul is not sanctifying the status quo, but challenging the illusions of those who think it wise to desexualize their marriage relationship, to attempt to become celibate without the gift of celibacy, to divorce their spouses, and to laud such changes as a higher calling. This is what Paul is doing. These people are saying, well, I'm going to divorce my spouse because then I'll be celibate and look how spiritual I'll be. Paul is saying, no, stay where you are. Or I'm single and I don't have that gift. We talked about that last week of of singleness. And so I'm going to, I'm going to remain this way even though it causes me to sin. Paul is saying, no, you're not more spiritual. God doesn't love you more. Remember the challenges in the Corinthian churches, they were so busy trying to top one another as being more Christian than the others that they're using their liberty to show, look, I can do whatever I want. I can, I can satisfy every desire, every hedonistic desire I want and still be a Christian. I'm really, truly more spiritual than you because I have the freedom to do this. And others were saying, no, 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 we're more spiritual because we abstain from all of that. Paul is saying that that's an illusion. So, first issue, in your ethnicity, remain as you are. Don't try to be something else. I I have a lot of friends and they they become believers and, and they think that by becoming, I mean, Jesus was a, Jesus was a Jew, he was a Hebrew, but by becoming more Hebrew that they're more spiritual. I don't have a real problem with people um, finding significance in, in a more Hebrew understanding of the Christian faith, but it doesn't make you more spiritual. It doesn't make you closer to God. Likewise, maybe Hebrews come to faith. They don't have to become like us. It's kind of it's probably more of a Gentile type of a service. So that's the first application. The second application will be a little more challenging for us, but um, I'll do my best. Well, The second application, verses 21 through 23. Were you a slave when you were called? 
And this is what Paul says, never mind. Paul is now moving from ethnic to social status. Now, it's important for us to understand that um, within the Greco-Roman world, um, probably the majority of the population was sla were slaves. I've heard everything from 50% to two-thirds um, were slaves. Um, and I've also heard sometimes people will try to put a really positive spin on Greco-Roman slavery, that it wasn't that bad, because there were doctors and lawyers who were slaves, and you could maybe own some property and, and get married, and there were certainly some freedoms, and some slaves were treated um, um, very, very well. But make no mistake, in the Greco-Roman world, um, slaves were still considered chattel property, and they were bound to an earthly master. And they had no rights. If a master killed a slave in the Greco-Roman world, there would be no charges brought against him. He could do that at will. And so while perhaps it was a better situation than the slavery that occurred in the antebellum South, it was still slavery. And some people sold themselves into slavery. This was how they paid their bills. And some got freed at a certain age. But nevertheless, Paul's point here is that even in such a lowly state, even here, glorify God. Free or not, keep God's commands. Adorn your humble position by God-glorifying labor. But, Paul says, if you can obtain your freedom, do so. Paul then turns and he gives honor to the slave by referring to them as the Lord's freedmen. In other words, you who are bound by an earthly master, you are the Lord's freedmen because God has freed you from sin, the law, and death. So even those who occupy the lowest station in life are kings and priests in the kingdom of God. Meanwhile, he says, those who are freed men and women are slaves of the law and sin and death unless set free by Christ. See, you were bought with a price, so do not become slaves of men. And so while institutional slavery is an abomination, it is still today. Let's not speak of it as a past. Slavery happens right now today. Paul is likely referring to Christians as free in a metaphorical sense. Live as those who are free, never enslaved to man-made philosophies, false religions, which offer no relief from sin, the law, and death. In other words, social status is nothing. That would be, I think, maybe a, a contemporary way of putting it. Obeying his commands and enjoying his presence are vastly more important than your ethnicity and are vastly more important than your social standing. Social status is conveyed by men, and we do it all the time. Well, you know, we, we compare and contrast janitors and lawyers, food service people and rocket scientists, and we demean one and we lift up the other as though one is more valuable than another. I don't know, I think we, maybe janitors are probably 
more valuable than lawyers. Well, we all need lawyers. I've had a need to need a lawyer and praise God for lawyers. That was a cheap shot I shouldn't have taken. But let's face it, if your kid grows up and he says, I want to be a janitor and I'm going to drop out of law school, you're probably going, uh. Paul's just simply saying, listen, social status is nothing. If you have a chance to get ahead, do so. So Paul then restates his principle. Remember, God's call to salvation was not determined by your ethnicity or social standing. I think in your notes I didn't include that not. The word not, it's kind of critical. God's call to salvation was not determined by our ethnicity or our social standing. He did not say, oh man, I see this person's going to be just a a great, great orator. Uh, That's going to be the condition on which I call him. No, God calls janitors, and I I don't say that in the sense of we have a kind of a social ranking. Menial labor, I called somebody to menial labor. God says, you glorify me in your menial labor. You can have my presence in menial labor. My love for you is not diminished. Only is not diminished if you don't get a college degree. My love for you is because I have loved you. Now, Paul is not stating that a person cannot change vocations or seek out better circumstances. But I think what he's saying is that conversion is not the, the, the signal to leave your job for a Christian job. So if you are a teacher and you become a Christian, that does not require that you now teach at the Christian school. You can continue on teaching where you're at. Or that, well, now I'm a, I'm a Christian, so now I have to become a missionary. No, you can go on and continue being a carpenter or a laborer or a lawyer or a, even a politician. You do not have to be a Christian shoemaker. You can just be a shoemaker. You will be a Christian, and as Luther would say, make a good pair of shoes and sell them at a fair price. You don't have to put crosses on them. You can if you want. Paul's just saying, that's not what I identify. Do good work. Live in my presence. You don't have to become a church planter to confirm your acceptance before God. Well, now I'm really accepted because I'm a church planter as opposed to, I was a carpenter, but now I'm a church planter. Somehow I've ascended the ladder of God's favor. No, you haven't. This is Paul's point. So I'll conclude with just a few few points here. All of life is God's. Serve him where you are. All of life belongs to God. Serve him where you are. So a few application points in my conclusion. God is more concerned about how you do your job than the job you have. Moving up the ladder may be God's blessing to you, but are you enjoying God's present blessing and presence in your current employment? 
I think God is less concerned whether you move up the, socials, the social ladder or the vocational ladder than that you glorify him where you are. Are you a dishwasher? Enjoy his presence and do a really good job and understand that God has called you. Um, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Obey God in that present circumstance. Be a good employer. Be a good employee. Staying in your calling is not, is not directed to those jobs that are violating God's commands. So if you're a drug dealer and that's your vocation, um, this doesn't apply. Um, first of all, repent of your sin. Turn from your drug dealing. If you're a thief, it's, the Bible says stop stealing. So stop stealing and then we'll find a good job for you. Um, and it may be... Anyways, so staying in your calling is not directed toward those whose jobs are violating God's commands. And then very importantly... The job you have presently, as long as you are there, is God's assignment for you. The job that you have presently, as long as you are there, is God's assignment for you now. It is no accident that he has placed you there. And perhaps he even saved you while you were in that vocation. This is your ministry. This is where God has called you. That is your assignment for you right now. God may change it. He may open doors for you, but right now, this is your assignment. Fulfill that calling. You say, well, what if I'm retired? I have no vocation. No, you are called. You are still a minister in that calling. And you can glorify God there. The idea of retired, the, the American view of retirement is so, so unique. First of all, the idea that we can retire and then do nothing, you know, or just travel and just whatever, enjoy our hobbies. That's such a unique, I don't think that's ever happened in the history of mankind until, what, maybe the past 100 years, maybe the past 75 years. I would encourage you, if you are retired, use your retirement to fulfill that calling and to glorify God in your retirement. Make much of God in your retirement. You have so much to give. You have wisdom. You have knowledge. You have skills. You have abilities. You have time. Maybe you even, many retired people, have finances and, and a security there that, man, you can do things for the kingdom of God the people who are young, raising a family, got a bunch of kids at home, man, just, but you can pour into that, that young family. You can glorify God in many, many ways. Father, we come before you this day, and we thank you, first of all, that you have called us, that you've drawn us by your Holy Spirit to your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that if there are those here today who you are calling now that they would not be able to leave here until they settle that matter. They will talk to myself or another Christian here in regards to what it means to repent and believe the gospel. And you would hound them until they do something. We praise you, Lord. I pray that you would help us 
this day, Father God, to realize that so oftentimes we, we uh, have a scale of spirituality and sometimes it's based on things like ethnicity or social status. Forgive us, Lord, that you love the lowly in society. You love the exalted in society. In society, You've called people where they are and you've placed them all over this, in every vocation imaginable. I pray, Father God, for this church that we are able to honor you where we are and whatever you've called us to do vocationally, that we would do so for your glory and we would enjoy your presence in doing so. So, Father, grant us grace this day. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.